We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3. We left off um, two weeks ago, and uh, in the end of Genesis chapter 2, we talked about God creating mankind, and He placed them in a garden. Uh, He put two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and He told them they can eat of all the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And now we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 3. Everything is going pretty good up until this point. And our paper today, we're going to cover chapters 3 through 5 of Genesis. And um, we see on our paper, at first glance, chapters 3 through 11, through the end of the rest of of our section here in Genesis, appear to contain an assortment of unrelated and strange stories. But in reality, this unit is a carefully orchestrated symphony with one single theme, the moral failure of mankind. So we're going to look at four events, four major events with a couple of other uh, side notes that are on there. The four main events is the fall of man in chapter 3. It's Cain and Abel and its effects in chapter 4, then the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And I want to take an overview before we get into chapter 3. So on your second paper, let's look at our second paper, the, the one page here. And we're going to see a pattern in each of these four stories. Today we'll look at two of them. But we're going to see the pattern of sin. We're going to see the pattern of judgment announced. We're going to see the pattern of the execution of judgment. But then we're also going to see that in the midst of the judgment is a token of grace that God gives. And so we're going to look for these as we go throughout each story. But the first point of these stories is they all contain sin. When God created the world, He created everything good. He created Adam and Eve, He created the world, and He looked at everything and He said it is very good. And everything up until the end of chapter 2 is running smoothly. And at the end of chapter 2, we begin to see some things change. And what we see change is, is Adam and Eve fall into rebellion, disobedience, that causes them to sin. And their eyes are opened, and from that point on, following them would be this sinful nature that would happen to all of their descendants. And as we go through the first 11 chapters, we see sin increasing and increasing. And even when we think there's an end to sin, we see sin increase again. So, number one, under sin, we see Adam and Eve disobey God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is their sin. Under number two, we see Cain becoming jealous of Abel and murders his brother in hatred and anger. Number three, humanity becomes, um, that is, should not be there, completely evil and filled with violence. The earth is full of violence. And then after the flood in chapters uh, 11, people settle down and build a city and a tower that is intended to reach the heavens. So in each of these four stories, we see the sin. We see the disobedience from eating of the tree. We see anger and murder. We see the earth becoming completely filled up with evil. And then people trying to build a tower to go up to heaven to reach the heavens themselves. After the sin, there is a judgment pronounced. The announcement of judgment, God rebukes Adam, Eve, and the serpent and places curses on them. God tells Cain that he would be a wanderer. 
God repents in making man and promises to send the flood of judgment and then announces that the language would be confused because all the people shared one language. After the announcement of justice or judgment, there is an execution of judgment. First of all, Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden and made subject to death. Cain was driven farther from Eden and made a wanderer. The earth and its inhabitants were destroyed by the floodwaters, and people were scattered and confused in their languages. So we see the sin, the announcement of judgment, and then the execution of judgment. Uh, and then we have the token of grace in each one that God covered Adam and Eve with coats of skin. Even in their sin, He covered them. Even in Cain's sin of murder, as He sent out on a wanderer. So people wouldn't take vengeance upon Him. God puts a mark to protect Cain from violence. In the flood story, God saved Noah and his family through the ark and was com- that He was commanded to build. So there was still redemption in not wiping out all of humanity, but basically restarting humanity. And then uh, the languages, rather than uh, the people were in complete confusion, they still had their faculties, but yet their languages were confounded. And also I would say that this, uh, the scattering of the nations from the Tower of Babel also sets us up for the Abrahamic covenant, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So we see that God's judgment, there is grace in the midst of it. And that grace is still to work out His intended purposes for salvation. So before, so God already has the remedy here, as we're going to see in just a little bit in Genesis, for sin that is going to happen. But as we're reading through these stories, we can look um, at kind of the pattern that we see here. As we go into Genesis chapter 3, as we left off last week, we're in a lush, beautiful garden. Uh, Adam has been given uh, a wife, and they are to come together, become one flesh, be fruitful, and multiply, and everything's supposed to work out lovely until the first words happen in Genesis chapter 3. And the first words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we're first introduced to this new character that seemingly comes out of nowhere. In fact, in one commentator says he slithers on the scene and slithers off the scene, and we never see this serpent again uh, through the rest of the Old Testament, or really until we get to Revelation uh, chapter 12, where this serpent, this ancient serpent, is identified as the devil. Uh, So chapter 3 introduces the changes that happen uh, to God's good world in chapters 1 and 2. The new character is introduced, the serpent, who would later be associated with Satan. Uh, his seditious nature and purposes are evident in his role as the great deceiver who challenges the goodness of God head on. Adam and Eve are not helpless victims of some persuasive force, but rather collaborators in evil. When we read the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, 1, he is presented simply as one of God's creations. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord our God had made. Um, But obviously, this serpent is so much more because he could talk. You know, we haven't seen very many serpents that could talk. He could reason. He's laying out a logical reasoning to Eve, and he can tempt, he can deceive. Uh, So this is not an ordinary snake that we see here, which brings up many questions and curiosities that people have had over the years about this snake. Was it even a real snake? Was it 
uh, Satan who made himself into an image of the snake and just appeared that way. Uh, how can snakes talk? Uh, since God cursed the ground or cursed him to crawl on his belly, uh, some have concluded that that means the snake had the ability to walk or to stand up. Uh, or in one, in, in one Adam and Eve movie, you know, he was a, like a serpent human type person uh, that was this reptile, reptilian type creature. Uh, does he have legs to walk? Uh, was this even a real animal or is this serpent symbolic of, say, chaos in God's good world? Is it symbolic of man's own temptation, which has been suggested? Uh, does the serpent speak of the loss of immortality? Uh, in we've talked about the ancient Near East stories and other ancient Near East stories. There are serpents in the Epic of Gilgamesh. He has this life-giving plant that can rejuvenate him over and over again, symbolic of immortality, and then it's stolen by a snake, and therefore he loses his immortality. So is it something like that? So there's a lot of curiosities and a lot of questions on the very nature of what is going on here. But the serpent is is said that is more crafty than the other beast of the field. Uh, craftiness can be a positive or negative. Jesus even tells his disciples to be wise as serpents, um, but tells them to be harmless as doves. Uh, it can connotate being uh, prudent or crafty. But he goes on to convince Eve that she can become like God. He says in verse number 5 of chapter 3, for God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, she was already like God. She was already made in the image and in the likeness of God. But he tempts and deceives her into thinking that there is something that she is missing that God has not given her. So he says, if you eat this, you will be like God. You'll be able to discern good and evil. You can make yourself your own judge as well. Uh, in fact, in you know, the judging between the good and evil, what is good, what is evil, she becomes her own judge, thus she becomes her own God. So to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she can become like God. She does this, it says in verse number uh, 6, that she took of its fruit and ate. And also gave to her husband that was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and not ashamed. But now, after she's rebelled against God, or Adam's rebelled against God and ate of the fruit, their eyes are open. They're awakened to a consciousness uh, that they were not previously aware of, and now they are faced with feelings of shame and guilt that would follow. So these shame and guilt have now overtaken them, and they go and they hide themselves. They make fig leaves together to cover themselves, and they hide themselves. So immediately we see Adam and Eve trying to cover their own sin and hide in guilt. Um, so their eyes were open, they discovered they were naked and needed clothes, and this act was in direct disobedience to God's command. But then we find in verse number 9 that God comes looking to them, and the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you, Adam? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. So now there's this, God's given them no reason up until this point to be afraid, but now they are afraid. 
and they realize that they are naked and they hid themselves. In chapter 3, verse 11, God tells them, Who told you that you were naked? God says, I didn't tell you. Who told you? And then he says, Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? And then they began to pass blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. So what happens from here is that because of their disobedience, because of the rebellion, and because of the deception of the serpent, judgments are passed down. And from chapter 14 down uh, through chapter, or verse 14 down through verse 19, we see the judgments. Judgments are placed on the serpent. Curses are placed on the serpent. Curses are placed on the man. And curses are placed on the woman. To the serpent, it says in verse 14, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and thus shall you eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, this shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see these curses that are placed upon the serpent, the woman, and the man, and how their lives will be radically changed because of what has happened. And this caused humanity to change in a number of ways, and we've listed four of them here. First of all, Adam and Eve lost their original innocence. It's the first thing that we see. Their opened eyes and sudden awareness of their nakedness signify their shame and guilt. Before their sin, they knew no guilt in either their relationship with each other or their relationship with God, but that totally changed after sin happened. Their relationship uh, with one another changed. They were naked and ashamed, and their relationship with God changed because they felt guilt, and they were fearful of God, so they hid from God. Second, they lost their intimacy with God's presence. This continues on in the same vein. Instead of meeting with God in the cool of the day, they hid themselves because of a new awareness of estrangement from Him. Now, God still goes to meet with them. God goes looking after them. But they themselves are hidden away in fear and guilt because of what they have done, having tried to clothe themselves and cover their own sin. But yet what we see here is that God takes and He makes a covering for them. They're suffering the consequences of their action, but God covers them. That's man's attempts at atoning for his own sin versus God atoning for the sins of man. So they hid themselves because of a new awareness. They were no longer comfortable in His holy presence. They were now guilt-ridden as they hid in the trees and made clothes out of fig leaves. And when challenged by God, uh, they blame, they should be blame each other for their sin. You can tell I work on this late at night and in a hurry because there's so much to, to write. The blame for their sin. Third, certain punishments or curses were handed down toward the serpent, the woman, and the man. So there's the woman's role as wife and mother to be married uh, by tension and painful childbirth. 
While the man's task as keeper of the garden is from now on to be characterized by hard and frustrating toll and eventual death. And we'll get to the serpent in a moment. Fourth, they lost their peaceful paradise and freedom of the Garden of Eden when God expelled them and the way of the tree of life was blocked. Thus, they lost their freedom from pain, disease, and death. So after the pronouncement of judgments and curses, God makes, fig- God makes garments of skin and clothes them. But yet God uh, exiles them from the garden. They're expelled from the garden to work the ground. Um, He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And of course, it's also interesting to note that what we see here as being blocked uh, in the book of Revelation when we get there is freely open to receive the tree of life again. So eating the fruit may have appeared innocent enough, but the action itself displayed something immoral below the surface. Rebellion against God's command. Temptation always entails a challenge to God's word, which he speaks for our eternal good. God alone understood the full danger of disobedience. He always knows what is best for us. These punishments or curses, as the text calls them, describe the problems faced by ancient Israelites and to a greater or lesser extent every human being. So we see that through the craftiness of the serpent, He led Eve away from the truth. And he does this by first questioning God. Has God really said? Has God really said, you shall not eat of the tree? And then she says, well, if we eat of the tree, we will die. And he says, you shall not surely die. The opposite, you will become like God. And it says back over in chapter 3, verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and desire to make one wise which goes that First John is tied back to this when First John says to love not the world, neither things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life uh, are not of God. So she has the lust of the flesh. It was good for food. The lust of the eyes, she saw that it was good and desired to make one wise. The pride of life to become like God. So... This sets the tone for what's going to happen immediately after this. But ultimately, it sets the tone for what's going to happen way in the future when God would send a Redeemer. In, chapter, in verse number 15 of Genesis chapter 3, when God curses the serpent, He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So now we see this battle of the offsprings that is here. And then he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is often what is called the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first gospel that is preached. The first gospel that is preached. Anticipating, at least as Christians look back on it, they see Jesus right here in Genesis 3.15 that the promise of a seed that was to come that would crush the head of the serpent. And so the first gospel that was preached, Christians see this as a prediction of the Messiah that would be victorious over the powers of Satan, sin, and death. But we'll see in a few moments that there's also this, this battle between this godly lineage and this ungodly lineage, as we'll see in a moment, which brings us into chapter 4. 
When we go to chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel. We see two brothers. We start off here in chapter 4, and Eve conceives and bears a son. And she proclaims, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So a man has been born to her, uh, and she conceives again, and there is a brother. Cain was the first one. Abel was the second. We're told here that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So already we see that Cain works from what God had just cursed the ground, and and Abel is a keeper of the sheep. It says, In the course of time, verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and he's warned uh, that sin is crouching at the door. Well, verse 8 says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So through the fall, humanity uh, unleashed, there was an evil power called sin that was unleashed in the world. And chapters 4 through 11 builds to a great crescendo of this sin to illustrate the utter desperation of the human condition. Sin is indeed lurking at the door and it desires to have you. In chapter 4, a brother's murder illustrates how quickly sin moves from eating forbidden fruit to taking a human life. So there's a big jump there from eating something you're not supposed to eat to killing your own brother. But that's what sin does. Humankind has now begun to reverse the creative work of God in chapters 1 and 2. Cain, who um, is pointed out, speaks his name, speaks of the humanity, uh, human tendency towards self-divination. And then Abel speaks of human existence as being mortal. Abel is said to be a keeper of the sheep, Cain a tiller of the ground. They both brought an offering to the Lord. Abel's careful to bring the very best to God. Cain fails to do so, and we are told that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, he did not look with favor. So, some questions arise here. You know, where did, where did this idea of sacrifice even come from? We haven't had a direct command to bring and sacrifice unto God, but in the course of time, obviously, there's revelation of this, and this is how they express their worship to God. So, they each bring an offering to God. And it's been speculated exactly why. Um, we see that one offering was accepted and one was not. One is what I previously mentioned, that one was brought from the fruit of the ground. The ground had already been cursed. God had given the animals to the man. Uh, one was could have been Cain's own work. Cain worked the ground, so he brought God his very own works, where Abel brought God a, a substitute for his own work, not his very work, but what God had provided, the offering uh, difference between our works and God's grace. You know, Hebrews tells us by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. So it could have been that Abel had faith and Cain just did not have faith. Therefore, God looked with favor upon Abel's offering by faith and not by Cain's as well. But because of this, Cain was angry. and We see anger boiling up in him, and he murders his own brother. And following in his parents' footsteps is the pattern of the conversation between Cain and God. 
We have the sin, we have the act, in this case is the act of murder. The act of murder is followed by a question. In Adam and Eve, it was, where are you? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Here, God asks, where is your brother? So after the sin, there is a question, where is your brother? Followed in turn by a lie. So then we see, after he asks, where is your brother? He says, I do not know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just as you know, Adam said, no, it's Eve's fault. Eve said, no, it's the serpent's fault. They're passing blame. And now Cain is lying at the response. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. Then followed by a curse. And the curse here is God mentions that his brother's blood was crying out from the ground. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. He says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So now God pronounces his curse or the judgment, which is similar in wording and tone to the previous curses that were just mentioned. And then just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, Cain is exiled even further from God's presence and sent off as a wanderer. Cain is then sent into exile and sentenced as a wanderer and sent away from the presence of the Lord. So in the case of Adam and Eve, and in the case of Cain and their sin, we see the similar pattern that is followed there as well. Also what we see here, but we still find God's grace. Cain makes a statement in verse number 13. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Whoever finds me will kill me is what Cain says. So what does God do? The Lord said to him, not so. Still just showing God's grace to his undeserving creation, which is the theme of all of the scripture. The Lord said, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then from here on out for the rest of the chapter, we see an increase of sin and violence. We are introduced to a man named Lamech. So what we find here is Cain had a wife and she conceived and bore a man named Enoch. Enoch built a city. Uh, Enoch, uh, then we go through a couple of lineages and it ends up in verse 18 and 19 with Lamech. And Lamech is the first, as notes here in verse number 19, he takes two wives, Adah and Zillah. And we find that in verse number 23, Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold, 70 times 7. So we see Lamech, who's obviously an upstanding citizen, taking two wives and then killing a man for wounding him, killing a young man for striking him. That is not equal justice. And we're actually going to see that that's what's going to happen. Unequal justice, and even, you know, even in the law, the, the law 
presented an eye for an eye. You know, a tooth for a tooth. What you do to somebody else would be done unto you. And the law was not perfect, but what the law tried to do was bring in justice. So somebody slaps you on the cheek, you didn't have the right to murder them, but they had, you had the right to, or they would suffer the same type of consequence. So here we have unequal justice with revenge being even much greater than we find here. And that's Cain's son. That's in Cain's lineage. So what we have here in 18 and 19 going down to Lamech, is we have what appears to be an ungodly line, an ungodly lineage of Cain. So, and this will go back to the offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. So we see an ungodly line. And then what we find is when we come to chapter 5, or the end of chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, verse 25, we have an Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So here at the end of this chapter, we have Adam and Eve having another son named Seth. And the indication here is this is a son from the Lord. This is a godly son. And it was during the days of his son Enosh that people began to call on the name of the Lord. Thus we have this setup between this ungodly lineage from Cain, being the first murderer, and this godly lineage of Seth that would ultimately lead to Noah. So we see this being played out here. As we go into chapter 5, we read of 10 generations. So chapter 5 begins with that phrase we saw several times. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man or Adam when they were created. And then it goes on to talk about Adam, his son Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, not the same Lamech, a different Lamech, and then ultimately with Noah. So you find here the descendants of Adam, all of whom also live for an exceptionally long period of time. The last of these is Noah, the survivor of the flood. Uh, we have here on our paper, the genealogies of chapter 5 serve as an important function in the medley of sin. Chapter 5 traces 10 generations of the faithful line of Adam from Seth to Noah. The long lives of these early humans may be attributed to the slowing, decaying effects of sin in the world. After the flood, the ages of Noah's descendants gradually shorten. Uh, we talked about that, um, you know, about how, why did they live so long back then? And there are many different you know, theories about why they live so long. Uh, some people said, you know, the picture we showed last week that the earth had a canopy uh, on it that they believed. Uh, some, you know, literally believed that there was a canopy over the earth in those days and that kept the harmful UV rays and the effects of the sun on people out. And therefore, people live longer after the flood. You know, they would say the canopy was crushed in by the waters and therefore, you know, the health of mankind was different. You know, that's certainly... a Speculation is not pointed out 
uh, in the scripture here. Uh, you know, the one writer here obviously says that it could be that the, they became more godly and the effects of sin was not as, as pervasive upon them as they were later. Um, we just don't know. Um, there are other genealogies from other uh, ancient Near East nations and countries. Uh, one Egyptian one lists eight kings that say they lived about 30,000 years uh, each. So uh, I think they're a little off there. Uh, but anyway, we have this long period of life, you know, with Methuselah living 969 years being the longest one there. Um, the Mesopotamian genealogies, and in the ancient Near East, most genealogies at this time were more for royalty. You know, it was for kings, it was for very, very important uh, people. Uh, Mesopotamian genealogies are mostly royal, mostly linear. Uh, one line of descent, such as we have here, as opposed to multiple uh, segmented lines of descent. Egyptian sources preserve long linear genealogies, sometimes extending 15 to 20 generations, often connecting priestly lines. So the implication there would be is that this genealogy we have here is important because of the godliness of the people and how God was going to bring about this cleansing with the flood beginning in chapter 6. Uh, genealogies represent continuity and relationship and are often used for purposes of power and prestige. Genealogies are sometimes formatted to suit a literary purpose. Thus, the genealogies between Adam and Noah and Noah and Abraham are set up to contain ten members, with the last having three sons. So we find another genealogy in chapter 10 uh, of Genesis that we'll look at there. Uh, and both of those you know, are similar in structure, with ten uh, members in each genealogy, with the last having three sons. So this sets us up here with, in verse number 28, we have Lamech living 182 years not the other Lamech, but this Lamech. Uh, he fathered a son and named him Noah, for saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. From our work and from our painful toil of our hands, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And then there are some people that believe that these numbers can be kind of figurative. You know, 777 would, of, would often speak a meaning uh, to people in the ancient world. Um, so they were actually using these numbers sometimes to get a point across. Um, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, so we're going to look from here, and I separated this because the flood story is just too much to tackle on top of tackling Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all of this. Um, but we're going to see the true escalation of sin that covers the whole earth in chapter 6 as we look at the uh, story of the flood. We're going to look at what are some of the common uh, beliefs about the flood. We're also going to look at maybe some misconceptions about the flood as well. So uh, next week will be pretty interesting as we uh, as we talk about the event of the flood so you know if you go back and you reread look look for some of these uh, parallels that we see look for some of the sin the judgment the execution of judgment look for the grace in it all and certainly we end in chapter 5 um, with a man who did find grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. So just remember, in the midst of all of this sin, in the midst of all of this judgment, God's grace is right there in the midst.